Well, good morning, and good to see you. I missed y'all last Sunday. Hope y'all missed me. <clears throat> oh, you were gone? Oh, okay. Um, I have a happy topic today I want us to look at from the Scripture. Uh, Romans chapter 4. We'll begin by reading four or five verses here. Romans chapter 4, verse 3. The topic is how to know that you're going to heaven when you die. Assurance. How can we have assurance of eternal life? Many people spend their whole life and energy preparing for a retirement that might only last a few years but spend little time preparing for eternity, thinking about it, pondering it. So it's good that you're here today. I want us to ponder this issue today. Romans chapter 4, and beginning in verse 3, Paul says, What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, And it was counted to him as righteousness. He's quoting there from Genesis 15. Verse 4, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as what is due. And to the one who does not work, verse 5, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Verse 6, just as David speaks of the blessing, quoting here from Psalm 32, of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Verse 7, he quotes Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered, and oh how blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So we're looking at an issue here of assurance. Can we know? And how do we know? Now you wouldn't, you wouldn't engage me very energetically if I said righteous people go to heaven. I mean, we all kind of instinctively know that it's the righteous who go to heaven. Matthew 25, verse 46. He compares all people standing before God at the judgment as those who are the goats and the sheep. And at the end of the judgment, he says, Matthew 25, 46, These shall go away into everlasting punishment, speaking of the goats, but the righteous, the sheep, the righteous into life eternal. It's the righteous that go into life eternal. Or Luke 23, 47. The Roman centurion standing at the cross looks up at Jesus as he dies and he says he glorified God and said, certainly this man was a righteous man. 
I think uh, some of the versions say innocent, but it's the same word as righteous throughout the New Testament, dikaios. This was a righteous man. So righteous people go to heaven. Jesus was a righteous man. And making it a little bit more nerve-wracking for us is the fact that John 17, 25 says God is righteous. Oh, righteous Father, Jesus prayed. The world does not know you, but I know you. So the righteous go to heaven, and Jesus was righteous, and God is righteous. Um, what does righteous mean? It means that which is right, ethically, practically, morally, before the law of Moses. Before God who knows our hearts. Uh, but then we look at Abraham, verse, Romans 4 verse 3 once again. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Was Abraham righteous? Well, in Genesis 20, in verse 2, it says that he went down into Egypt and Abimelech, the Egyptian king there, um, was known to take uh, women into his harem. And so Abraham, in a great heroic, self-sacrificing moment, said to Sarah, Hey, I want you to pass yourself off as my sister. Because after all, he might kill me and take you. As it is, you know, he will just take you <laughs> and let me go. And by the way, that's Genesis 20. He did the same thing in Genesis 12. So he's repeating a previous sin. Further, in Genesis 16, Abraham, at the permission of his wife took Hagar, an Egyptian servant, and made her to be a concubine. Or one version has wife. And out of her, of course, came the Arabs. And so that didn't work out too well. And in Genesis 25, and I don't know why I have never seen this before, and I've read this passage many, many times. Genesis 25, verse 5 and 6. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, his firstborn son. But to the sons of his concubines, plural, Abraham gave gifts and sent them all away. And I looked at that, and I, to the sons of his concubines, Abraham had a wife, and another wife at the same time, and concubines. And I had just never seen that. But Abraham here, verse 3, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. In the same way with David, verse 6, as David spoke of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, saying, blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and sins are covered. And we know that David wasn't exactly 
your paragon of virtue. Remember Bathsheba and the manipulating of the army so that her husband Uriah died in battle. And then he took his wife as his own. So David's not exactly a righteous man. So what is this? Well, Paul has introduced this whole idea of the righteousness of God back in chapter 3. Look up uh, chapter 3, verse 21 and 22, and look what Paul says. I think we have this on, on the screen for you. He says, There's a righteousness of God, or from God, but now the righteousness from God has been manifested. It's made its appearance apart from law. Verse 22, Romans 3, 22. It's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It's through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And now the Apostle Paul says Abraham believed God. Righteousness is not simply to be measured out by your conduct and performance. But it can be accounted to you when we believe God. And he uses Abraham, who wasn't exactly righteous, and David, who wasn't exactly righteous, as the illustrations of how to be righteous. A righteousness that pleases God. The greatest patriarch, Abraham, the greatest king who wrote many of the Psalms, both had this righteousness of faith. There's a couple of key points that I want to make here. One, in this passage in Romans 4, he uses the word count or counted. I don't know, five or six times. Look at verse 3. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God... And it was counted as righteousness. Verse 4, to the one who works, his wages are not counted uh, as a gift, but as that which is due. Verse 5, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Or verse 6, David speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness. This is a key word. King James, I think, uh, translates it as uh, reckon. He reckons it. But this word is the Greek word elege. And I'm not a scholar in Greek, and it's not usually that helpful to bring up something, but this is very relevant. So I want to put it in front of you today. Elege is a financial term. To be counted, <clears throat> we even use the word count like that. It's financial, <clears throat> it's mathematical. And it was used to put something on a charge card or a ledger to your account. Um, let me give you an example of where this word is used. <clears throat> In uh, the little book of Philemon, we have this verse we can put on the screen. Philemon chapter 1. Uh, There's only one chapter, but... The background here is Philemon 
was a good friend of the Apostle Paul. And Paul is now traveling on his missionary journeys and Philemon, his good friend, had an indentured servant named Onesimus. And Onesimus stole from, a, from Philemon and ran away. Well, amazingly, this uh, indentured servant crossed paths somewhere in Rome with the Apostle Paul. Got to talking. They both knew Philemon. And Paul had him, led him to Christ, pointed him to Christ. And Onesimus, the runaway, became a Christian. So he asked him, what should I do now? And Paul said, you should go home. Go back to your master. Go back to your boss. Return him what you have stolen. And Paul writes these words. Philemon 1.17. He writes to Onesimus about this servant that's coming home. And he writes to Philemon about this servant coming home. And he says, receive him as you would receive me. And if he has wronged you or owes you, charge that to my elege account. Now that's the word that is used here five or six times. It was counted. It was put on his account. And, and so that the gospel becomes this wonderful transaction. Almost a sin is sometimes called like a debt. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. But when I sin, I am now in debt. I have to pay for that somehow or another. And as the sin mounts through life, the debt load becomes increasingly burdensome and sorrowful. Then we discover that Jesus died for us and my ledger full of debt, went over to him. And his ledger of perfect righteousness went over to me. When I put my faith in him and trust in him, there is this incredible miracle before God. I am counted righteous. And Jesus on my behalf was counted sinful and thus was punished and paid the debt before God in my place. That is the most wonderful news. And my righteousness has been given to me. I didn't earn it. That's why he says in verse 3 or verse 4, Now to the one who works, his wages aren't counted as a gift. If you worked all week, your boss doesn't come to you and say, hey, I just want you to know that we have transferred uh, a certain amount of money into your account as a gift. Uh, no. I'll be paying taxes on that money because I earned it. This word is a financial transaction. So Romans 5.19 puts it like this. By one man's obedience, that is Christ." many will be made righteous. His obedience. Many made righteous. Not my obedience makes me righteous because my obedience is so full of failure. 
And though well-intentioned, it's mixed up with my disobedience. And so it's my obedience is defiled and shortened and abbreviated and corrupted. But I have a perfect righteousness through Christ. Now there's another key point here that I want to make. I said I had two. And it's this word in verse 5. Now to the one who does not work... But See, most people, they don't get what Christianity is. They don't get what the gospel is or the biblical message. They think, okay, I've got to start going to church. got to start giving money. got to start praying. got to start reading the Bible. It's work. To him, verse 5, who does not work but believes in him who justifies, that is, makes righteous, the ungodly. He justifies the ungodly. Well, that ought to get some of us in there. That ought to get some of us into heaven. He will justify the ungodly. And notice the word justify, and I'll bring this out. Some of the commentaries point this out. It is what is called a continual tense in the original language. He continually justifies. It goes on and on. Because, see, here's the problem. Okay, so I can be justified today, and I I come to Christ, I put my faith in Christ, and I'm justified, but there's always Monday and Tuesday. And what happens is that we we don't get the idea that this this is a ledger And that the status we now have is not based on our conduct and performance. Oh, it's a dangerous doctrine. I'll give you that. It's always been that way. And it's open to accusation. Once you shift your righteousness back to your performance, you will shift it back to shaky ground and uncertainty, and you will soon lose assurance. So continually, your moment of your greatest failure does not impact your righteous standing in Christ. I'm talking about position, not condition. And... So he says in verse 5, the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then look at verse 8. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord, verse 8, blessed, oh how blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And this in the Greek text is called a double negative, a double denial. It's it's used for emphasis and permanence. A double negative is when, it's the Greek word ume, and it's used when you kind of, grammatically, it's awkward. It means no, never. God will not 
No, not ever count his sin. It's used for emphasis and permanence. It's awkward grammatically, but it's wonderful theologically. A double negative is used by Jesus in Luke 21, 33, when he says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word shall not, ume, double negative, pass away. My word shall not, no, not ever, pass away. It's like a little parenthesis. Listen up, this is never going to happen. That's what it's like a little parenthesis. And that's what is used in verse 8. The Lord will not, no, not ever count his sin against him. You see, the power of the death of Christ is such that it transcends time. It goes into the past and it goes into the future. Let me show you the past real quick. Hebrews 9.15. Look at this verse regarding Old Testament saints. Hebrews 9.15. Jesus is the, it's talking about Jesus. He's the mediator of a new covenant. So those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Jesus' death reached into the Old Testament, first covenant, the old covenant, and redeemed them as well as us. It, went, it was retroactive. Abraham could trust God and believe God because one day Jesus was going to die for him and redeem him. Old Testament saints were saved by the death of Christ. Now, look into the future. It not only pays retroactively, but it pays in advance. <laughs> because Hebrews 10, 12 reads like this, when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting until his enemies be made a footstool. And then verse 14, Hebrews 10, 14. For by a single offering, he perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. They're being sanctified, but they're perfected even now. For all time. So Jesus' death went warp speed in both directions, past and future. It took in those who believed in the Old Testament, and it takes in those who believe, who are believers in the New Testament, and it gives them a righteousness that is a perfect standing before God. And it's permanent. That, and he will no, not ever count their sins against them. If we tried to make it on our righteous acts... We are no safer than our next failure, our next sin. But Daniel 9.24 says that when Jesus came, He came to finish the transgression, put an end to sin, atone for iniquity, and bring in everlasting righteousness. It's everlasting. This is not a righteousness that dissipates with your failures but it's a righteousness through Jesus Christ.
So instead of looking at ourselves, and here's how we gain assurance. We, we don't want to look at ourselves. Don't, don't look in the mirror if you want to be assured on how holy you are. That leads to depression. Instead of looking at ourselves, let us look to three things. Number one, the Scripture. The basis and authority of our pronouncements. Remember what he said? As the Scripture, what does the Scripture say? Romans 4.3. That's Paul's authority. Where does he get this thing of being righteous by faith? From the Scripture. Going back into Genesis. In other words, the Scripture brings God's promises to us. Not my promises to God. (laughs) I told uh, our early service this morning, I shared with them that when I was a young man, I was distraught about my struggles and I remember going to the church and kneeling at the altar and I promised God I would never sin again. (laughs) And when I told the church that, they all started laughing. So they've known me a long time. They've known me a lot longer than you. Would you make that promise to God? (laughs) I wouldn't ever make that promise to God. And you know, I didn't last more than 10 years before my first sin. (laughs) No, it's more likely I didn't last more than 10 minutes. When you you have family, you have neighbors, you have people honking at you. I had two people this past couple of weeks who went into overdrive shooting obscene gestures at my person because of my driving. And I didn't put an obscene gesture back because you never know if it's a church member or not. (laughs) (laughs) But oh, what was inside me? So it is not our promises to God. It is... Looking to Scripture. What does the Scripture teach about righteousness? And here's the way you're going to gain assurance. What does the Bible say? I'm going to to put my foundation on that strong, enduring place, the Scripture. Here's a second thing you look at, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the Gospel. Remember what we said and quoted from Romans 3.22? There's a righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. It's faith in Jesus Christ. That is the one to whom we look. It is the gospel that saves, turns your eyes upon Jesus. And then number three, we look at our standing the ledger we have in Christ, if we are to have assurance. I mean, there are things in this life, if you do, I mean, there are crimes. There are crimes. And if you, there are certain crimes, you may have to pay the penalty, you may have to pay a fine, or you may even go to jail. 
But we're talking about going to heaven and having assurance you're going to heaven. And that assurance comes through your standing before God. An old Christian was dying and his pastor who was uninformed on the gospel came to him and said, Sir, have you so lived that you are not afraid to die? And the old gentleman said, No, but I have so learned the gospel that I am not afraid to die. Can you say that? I have so understood and I have so comprehended the gospel itself that I can say I'm not afraid to die. That's assurance. A sweet lady last week, one of our older members, uh, has been diagnosed with cancer. And I was handing out these little sheets on what I was going to preach on today on how, the, how justification by faith, not works, is what will give you assurance of heaven. And so when I was handing these out, I, I, sat, I sat down next to her and gave her one. And... Uh, this is over at our early service. And I knew that the doctor had diagnosed her. And so I gave her that little sheet. And she started telling me about her visit to the doctor when she found out she had cancer. And it's, it's slow growing, but it's inevitable for her, according to the doctor. And uh, she said, the doctor asked me, if I needed a therapist, would you like a therapist to help you as you move in this journey? And she said, no. I told him, no, I don't need a therapist. And she pointed to the topic today, justification by faith. She said, that's my therapy right there. I thought, that is so beautiful. That's your therapy. You want to know how to live your life and die your death, and know that you'll go to heaven when you die, it's by looking to what? The Scripture, the Gospel, and your standing before God through Jesus Christ. That, my friend, is therapy. Next Sunday morning, I want us to return to this, and I want to point out to you that there's another word that is used regarding our growth before God, regarding our progress, and it's the word sanctification. We talked about justification or righteousness this morning. Next Sunday, I hope you'll join me as we talk about sanctification and holiness. And I want to show you how Jesus Christ, the living God, is the source of both our justification and our sanctification. Justification, once and for all, perfect and, and eternal before God. Holiness or sanctification, imperfect, progressive, and changeable. We're going to look at how Jesus Christ brings justification and our sanctification.
all at once. Sanctification doesn't get you to heaven. Justification gets you to heaven. But justification leads to sanctification. So I hope you'll join me next Sunday morning. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you today that you have provided for us through the Lord Jesus Christ a perfect and unchanging standing by attributing and investing in on our, onto our moral ledger a place of a perfect acceptance with you. Thank you, Heavenly Father. And may we, all of us this day, put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right.